substance use disorders are often highly politicized um, instead of treated as medical illnesses. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the September 9th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are describe the impact of COVID-19 on people with substance use disorders, and discuss the changes that have been implemented to address challenges imposed by the pandemic. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Kathleen Brady, Director at the South Carolina Clinical and Translational Science Institute and Distinguished University Professor, as well as Vice President for Research at the Medical University of South Carolina. She will be discussing issues faced in addiction medicine during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Brady, thank you so much for your times today. Thank you, Faith, and uh, thank you to Dr. Kathleen Brady for uh, joining today to uh, help discuss some areas that probably don't get enough attention, really, with the current pandemic. And uh, Kathleen, uh, we were discussing beforehand that uh, you're relatively familiar with Baltimore. I came to Baltimore in 1988. You may have been there beforehand, but for uh, our listeners that may not be as familiar with Baltimore, I would say our city has always had um, uh, concerns with substance uh, use, for example, you know, going back to the late 50s and 60s was always classified as a heroin city. And I trained as a house officer here. We dealt as best we could, but there was really very little attention or support. But then, lo and behold, the prescription opioid epidemic occurred, populations in the rural and suburban areas began to be affected, uh, let's just say white populations as opposed to uh, others historically, uh, perhaps with a greater proportion. And so now we have the COVID-19 pandemic and I think the opioid epidemic, which really got some good traction and attention um, a few years ago, I think, unfortunately, uh, have had competing interests. So I, I thought you might help with some insights. Uh, wh what do you see happening right now? And perhaps in the future, if you could use the crystal ball and in, in for some of these issues related to important segments of our society. Yes, you're right. Uh, substance use disorders are often highly politicized um, instead of treated as medical illnesses. And back in the 80s, there was very disproportionate 
punishment for using crack cocaine, let's say, versus snorting cocaine. And we knew that crack cocaine was used primarily by African-American and black populations and snorting was a higher socioeconomic group. So, um, and there's examples like that throughout our history and the history of other countries. But you're right, Baltimore has the dubious distinction of being one of the high, having one of the highest rates of IV drug use probably for the last 20 years. And um, you're also right that when it was heroin and just IV use, it had the normal um, level of attention and funding. But as soon as this became um, the opioid overdose epidemic where it was overprescribing that got things started and white and middle class and rural populations were dying frequently as a result of opioid overdose, it got a lot of attention. And as a result of that, in 2016, 2017, um, the federal government pushed millions of dollars into treatment across the states. And they pushed it into amplifying the current treatment systems, but also something that we call medication-assisted treatment, which is the use of buprenorphine, uh, naltrexone or methadone uh, to treat opioid dependence. We know that is a life-saving treatment and many treatment programs didn't offer uh, medications. They didn't have MDs. They, uh, substance abuse treatment programs have often operated at the margins of what we would consider traditional medicine, both in terms of the payment structure and in terms of how involved medicine and medical personnel actually are with the programs. It varies yeah. tremendously. I know uh, we've been hearing quite a bit with the COVID pandemic about certain populations disproportionately affected, uh, Blacks, Latinx, for example, and so on. They, to me, there's a, a potential intersection with people that uh, also suffer from substance abuse disorders and so oh. on. So have you picked up any kind of immediate impact of the pandemic on this population or something that's not really being widely reported? What, what should we be paying attention to? Well, there's a couple of things. One is that, you know, opioid overdose is a huge contributor to death in the United States and um, to, to our mortality rates. And in 2018, for the first time in probably 10 years, we saw a decrease in opioid overdose deaths. 2019, that went up again by about 5% to about 72,000 people dying from opioid overdose. And what we're seeing, so that was, people were pretty disappointed because it looked like the big push that the federal government had made to um, get uh, medication assisted treatment out had actually helped with our overdose rates. Then in 2019, it looked like it was getting worse again. And in 2020, I can tell you so far that for instance, in Delaware, opioid overdoses for the first half of 2020 are up by 60%. In Washington, DC, they're up by 35%. In uh, Colorado, Wisconsin, um, Minnesota, um, also up by 30 to 40 percent. And in South Carolina, we're not even in the top 10, but the number of people that have received naloxone treatment, that's the emergency treatment for overdose, is up by 50 percent in the first six months of 2019 compared to the first that that, that's really remarkable, and I, I, I yeah. don't think those are numbers that are frequently being reported or cited. 
you know, I think many of us, I mean, I, I see patients in the clinic and, and uh, certainly uh, many primary care providers and others have commented on the social isolation, the anxiety, the depression aspects that the pandemic brings. But uh, what's your sense? I mean, is it is it just extra stresses on this population or is it more that medical access and programs are just not nearly as accessible as they were given the strain on resources or is it some combination of factors? I think it, I think it's a combination I think it's all of the above so for instance in the in in South Carolina I knew of about uh, five to ten programs throughout the state that just simply shut their doors. Residential programs, as you can imagine, shut their doors because people were living, you know, three or four to a room. But a lot of medication-assisted treatment programs shut their doors. They hadn't, as I said earlier, we uh, have always sort of operated on the margins of the medical profession. And until we had medication-assisted treatment, a lot of these facilities did not consider themselves medical facilities and did not consider themselves essential. So when things closed down, they thought they could close down. Um, then th this happened throughout the United States. Then state directors came in and said, no, 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 we've got to figure out a way to open up. And so they started to actually loosen up some of the restrictions on telehealth and actually be allowing people to provide this sort of treatment through telehealth, which previously had not been allowed. It wasn't funded and it was against the law. So that was one thing. But add to that, I think the fact that there is a lot more social isolation. And even if you can get your medications or whatever through telehealth, the, the way we deliver treatment is often in a group format. And there's lots of hugging and weeping. And, you know, it's just, I mean, that, you know, people get strength from um, seeing other people who have gone through the same thing and come out the other end and are doing well. So that, you, you know, take away all of that. And, you know, between that, their social support's gone and treatment facilities being unreliable for a little period of time. Um, I think that's what accounted for it. I also think you can't um, dismiss the economic instability and housing instability. I mean, these, mm -hmm. a lot of people with substance use disorders are always operating right on the edge of that. These are the first people to lose their jobs. They're the first people to lose their housing. Um, and so combine that with all the other things and they're, they're much more likely to drop out of whatever treatment is available. So I think it's just been a, an extremely difficult time. You know, uh, it was uh, striking to me that, of course, this could easily cause uh, problems with people's mental health issues as well as substance abuse, but even from an economic perspective, it's disrupted so many parts of our business. What, I mean, I, I'm sure there's no data analysis or, or perhaps uh, people are just beginning to look at how police handle sort of low grade drug dealing and so on and so forth. Has the pandemic somehow stymied some uh, people that might be binging now so they can't get supply and then they get it. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's some even economic factors that potentially are playing a role that we're not even thinking of because everyone thinks, well, everyone, you know, gets their items every day and it's just a very regular issue like, you know, prescription medication. But of course, we know that's often not the case. Yeah, and I think, um, no, I think that's absolutely, there's been a lot of speculation about that. So I think the supply chain has been interrupted, both, 
both licit supply chain because people didn't have access to physicians as well as the illicit supply chain. We know yeah. it's been interrupted. And it, the one thing about opioids is people get tolerant really quickly. And so mm -hmm. you, you, you up your dose to get the same high, but that same tolerance goes away really quickly. So you go through withdrawal, you, you miss a few days, then um, get a dosage and it may feel much stronger because you're no longer tolerant. And so people speculate that that irregular, these interruptions in the supply chain are also one of the reasons for overdose because people are losing tolerance and then taking uh, a dose that they, that previously would have been safe, but no longer is safe for them. Yeah, of course, overdosing is such a cal calamity all around. And, uh, you know, you're really intervening at the last minute. But of course, um, I've seen ads for naloxone, for example. And uh, uh, do you feel like some of this public messaging to help is just also, I mean, it's still there a little bit, but I, I just have a sense the wind's out of its sails. And I, I think attention is just so much turned. And, and I, I just, I, I, I do wonder that it's not only that kind of sympathetic effort, but you know, here we have a presidential campaign, and this was such a hot item, of course, even in the 2018 midterm elections. And I, I don't think I've heard much of it at all, despite it being a signature issue. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I mean, I think that the t attention has been diverted from this, and as that's happened, the problem has gotten worse. And and you know, uh, the um, federal monies that were put into the system are done on a year-by-year -year basis. And so yeah. even though yes. treatment programs are building and, and um, new people are coming into treatment, uh, for many of those, we have no idea, especially if there's no uh, Medicaid expansion, we have no idea what next year will hold for them. So. Yeah. Yeah, you really can't count on it. I remember uh, uh, I was on Capitol Hill lobbying on behalf of IDSA uh, and its members, for example, for the HIV eradication program. And of course, that was just a single line item. I forget the exact number, but it was you know, not a high, I mean, it's a lot of money, but not, not the kind that you think is going to make a big impact was it 35 or 50 million but whatever it was it was just for that year and yeah. so what happens after this and it's very hard to build programs when you know you just have this kind of uh, light item aspect but as an infectious disease physician we often see that infection brings people to the medical establishment. Um, so we'll see endocarditis, we'll see skin and soft tissue infections, for example. There are also sort of more geographically unique problems such as typhus uh, that has been affecting some uh, people in Southern California and Texas, for example. What kind of trends do you sort of see just from uh, medical illnesses that seem to be heightened in addition to the COVID pandemic uh, infections? Um, well, you know, again, I think part of the problem is many of those people that you're seeing with various infectious diseases, as well as traumatic injuries that come into the uh, emergency rooms, and that's right, are substance users. I mean, they are, they're much more prone to the, some of their behaviors, lead them both to get more infections and, uh, and, and be traumatized. We've had a big push to to recognize that illness, that the substance use in the face of the infectious disease or the trauma or whatever, either in the emergency room or people are hospitalized and, and be more aggressive about treatment. So a lot of, there have been, I'm in a, I'm one of the uh, PIs on the study right now that we're conducting 
in um, collaboration with Yale. And that's exactly what we're, it's an infectious disease services where um, Sandy Springer is my uh, colleague in, at Yale and we're starting people in hospital on long acting buprenorphine, people mm -hmm. with infectious disease right. and um, opioid use disorder. And we also have an emergency room program where we've got counselors that are screening and we start medication assisted treatment in the emergency room. Both the infectious disease service and the emergency room service are so overwhelmed with COVID that it's actually really hard to get their attention for, for, for this right now. So um, once again, this is an, a marginalized population under any circumstances, but especially in a situation where the country's attention is riveted in another direction, this is a group that's really likely to fall through the cracks. Yeah, excellent points. Well, uh, uh, Kathleen, thank you so much for those insights. I think it's it's really eye-opening, and I think for someone like yourself that's you know uh, working with these populations regularly, it's 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 um, uh, really crucial that uh, voices such as yours and highlighting uh, the problems here are really brought out to attention because I think this is a part of our society that's so easily marginalized. Well, thank you very much. It's really, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these important issues. Okay, thank you again, Dr. Brady and Dr. Allwater for an enlightening discussion about a very important topic. As a reminder, to claim credit, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, select today's activity, and complete the evaluation. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. 